Hopefully it's not news to podcast listeners that the NHS staff are in dispute about pay with junior doctors on strike. The consultants have just had their ballot result overwhelmingly in favour of striking. And one narrative from the government, indeed Rishi Sunak himself, is on record as saying that he cannot authorise public sector pay increases for hardworking NHS staff because it will drive up inflation. And on today's podcast, we are going to examine this claim in detail and try and work out if there's any merit to it. And to do this, we have an extremely special guest, which we will introduce after the introduction. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. All right, so super special guest today because it's my pleasure to welcome for your main podcast debut, Mr. Matthew Hodder. Hello, hello, Tommy. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing good, but I cannot believe that you've been working for us now for over a year. And this is our first main podcast that we've done together because you've kind of got your triage podcast on the Thursday, which is going really well. You're spearheading a medical student podcast, which is coming out really soon. But this is your main podcast debut, which is kind of ironic, really, because you are managing the whole ship of Medics Money amazingly well. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So we're debating quite a complex topic today, which is basically, does Rishi's claim stack up that a public sector pay-wise would drive inflation? I always start most podcasts, as you know, because you've edited the majority of them, (laughs) by asking the guests to give us their credentials. Why have you got the credentials to talk about today's pretty complex subject? Wow. I'm in the hot seat. I've listened to probably more episodes of the podcast by you than anyone else, I reckon. So I've had a chance to prepare. So my journey began after my A-levels. I did economics A-level. Loved it. It was fairly basic, but I loved it at my college. And then from there, decided to do economics at degree level. And so off I went to the University of Leeds and I did philosophy, politics and economics with a kind of specialism in economics, if you like, because they give you the option. And so hopefully... You know, graduating from that should give me a bit of credence to weigh in on this topic. Awesome. So you've got a degree in economics. Since you joined Medics Money, you've also become a qualified financial advisor. So congratulations about that. We need to do that episode actually about what you and because Ed's also done that qualification, which is absolutely ridiculous. He's now a doctor, a chartered accountant, chartered tax advisor, and a qualified financial advisor. But you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's just showing off. To go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's just get straight into examining this claim. So where are we going to start? And basically, I'm going to be playing the role of normal person without a degree in economics or financial advisor, asking probably simplistic questions. So bear with me. That is my role on the podcast, basically. <laughs> well, I think a good place to start is examining why he might have said that, why Rishi might have claimed this. And I think... There are two main things. The first one, I think, would be, I can almost understand it. It's kind of from a point of view of balancing the government budget. From the point of view of balancing the budget, the government obviously receives revenues from tax receipts from all of us on our income tax or dividends, savings. And they have to balance this with the government spending on public goods, such as the NHS, such as 
road, you know, street. Don't say street repairs because uh, yes. I haven't seen, I mean, allegedly, but my road is literally pothole ridden. I'm thinking about getting a Land Rover just to navigate my street, which is a normal <laughs> suburban street just with four foot deep potholes in it. Oh, of course. So, yeah, <laughs> perhaps maybe more, you know, Mars Rover technology would be more <laughs> adequate but yeah okay so welfare payments welfare payments is a good example of what they need and rightly or wrongly he would believe that withholding pay rises from public sector workers such as those in the nhs would go a long way into reducing the difference between them as i believe the government's in a massive deficit and they have been for many years now now the second one of which which we will hopefully debunk today is what he calls the wage price spiral or for want of a better word. Now, the theory here is that it's a vicious cycle between workers demanding higher wages and then employers, businesses passing these costs, these additional costs from the wage bill on to the consumers, to us, especially in the private sector. And this is just in turn, workers need more money to pay for these increased prices. So it's a vicious spiral and that's what he's kind of worried about. And we do hopefully have some economists weighing in, which you know, much more established economist than myself as to why this is not quite accurate. High inflation is a big problem at the moment. They're working to try to get it down. And secondly, the government is in a huge deficit. So they're kind of claiming they can't afford the wage increase, even though I think the cost of the wage increases is comparatively modest to what was spent on other projects like PPE with their friends, etc. But we won't go down that political rabbit hole today. We're going to stay classy today. So yes. <laughs> classy as we get anyway. So that sounds kind of plausible to me, but then I'm not an economist like yourself. So give us like the counter, the counterpoint. Yeah, the, the biggest counterpoint at the minute that I wholeheartedly believe is it just... <sighs> It doesn't make sense. So the main measures of inflation in the UK are essentially CPI, consumer price index. All that captures is a basket of goods that we would buy in a month, and it kind of measures those price changes, and that feeds into the overall inflation rate. If they can measure the changes of prices of bread, eggs, milk, coffee, they can estimate that, well, things in the economy are overall going to increase by this percentage rate. Another one is the CPI H, which is used by the ONS, which is CPI, but it includes housing costs. If you want a bit of... Inflation trivia, to if I can dethrone Ed for a little bit. Hold on, wait, this is a new segment because Ed does his tax trivia, which is literally legendary. Like why tax changes burnt down the House of Parliament, why Jaffa cakes are the most tax efficient snack out there. Economics trivia, new segment, go. New segment. Okay, so this is not going to dethrone the Jaffa cake or the House of Parliament because that's phenomenal. But when they include housing costs in the CPIH, they don't actually use the cost of housing. What they use is something called rent equivalents. So what they're trying to say is if you own your house, how much would you be paying in rent if you wanted to live there? And then they use that as a metric of housing costs for whatever reason. These things are beyond me, but that's the kind of thinking there. Nice, nice trivia. So yeah, it's a minor trivia just to get you started. And yes, so those two measures are broadly based upon things that we all pay for, right? We all pay for our housing. We all pay for the basket of goods that we all use. Now, the thing with the claims that the wage price spiral is going to happen, we don't directly pay for the services that the public sector provides. We don't pay for the NHS. It's what's called free at point of service, as well you'll know, Tommy. We don't pay for our street lighting directly. And what, it, what this means is how can it contribute to the inflation rate when there's nothing paid? Right? It just doesn't, it doesn't stack up. And that's what the economists are trying to you know, point out. So there has been, from economists, data found to support this, right? 
they found that the correlation coefficient between public sector wage increases and inflation is basically negligible and not statistically significant. I don't know if doctors or if anyone's really taught about what statistical significance means. Essentially, it means that if you've got a number, let's say we found that ice cream and sandals are correlated 100%, or whatever you want to say. If there's no statistical backing to it, what you know, i.e. if it's too weak, if it doesn't support it, the number's basically irrelevant. So what they found is there's a very weak the correlation coefficient is 0.04, essentially positive. So even if it was statistically significant, that's a really low correlation between public sector pay increases and inflation. But it's not statistically significant, so we can't really make any claims about it, right? That's the general process. Whereas in the private sector, as you might expect, pay rises are weakly positively correlated to inflation. So in the private sector, we can kind of understand the wage price spiral a little bit clearer than in the public sector. So the theory is, let's take the current context of the UK. We've been, you know, there's rising production costs all over, thanks to oil, the war in Ukraine, other such kind of political destabilizing events, shall we say. Now, these rising costs are going to increase demand for higher wages. You might naturally think that, right? Workers can see that the prices of bread, all their groceries going up. They think, well, okay, well, we need higher wages to compensate for this. This is going to lead, in turn, to higher production costs on the private sector side, which then resets the cycle. You know, rising prices, rising production costs, higher wages. It's, it's a nasty cycle. Whereas in the public sector, there's no price at the point of service. There's no price increases for the NHS. There's no price increases for streetlights. These are what is called what are termed public goods in economics. And if you want your second economic trivia of the day, we can define public goods very broadly as non-excludable, non-rival. All this means is that if I'm using it, it doesn't take away from someone else. Let's use streetlights as an example, or lighthouses. If I see a light, that's not going to impact your ability to see a light. Non-excludable means that you can't exclude anyone from it based on the price. So the NHS is a good example of that, right? Just because you can't afford to pay for an MRI or an X-ray doesn't mean you're going to be excluded. And because there's no charge for these things at the point of service, there can't really be any wage demands in relation to this because there's no response to it. So that's why when economists say there's no direct link between public sector pay and inflation, there just can't be. There's no link there. Do Do you kind of get what I mean? Yeah, I think that has actually helped to clarify it. I mean, this is complicated, but I think basically I get that. So like the wage price spiral, which you mentioned that applies Mm. in the private sector is basically, you know, firms push their prices up, their real terms wage decreases, workers demand a wage hike, which decreases the profits of the firms. So because then like the basic counter to that is in the public sector, like the NHS, you increase wages in the NHS, but because the face cost of the goods and services the NHS provide is zero, i.e. free at the point of use, it doesn't drive up the cost. Yeah, it doesn't drive up the cost of NHS services. Although, you know, arguably there are other things that might increase the cost of NHS services. You know, there are also production costs we've got to think about. Some medical supplies will definitely fall within the public remit. And yeah, absolutely right. So it doesn't increase, it doesn't spiral price increases across the NHS because there's no prices to increase as the general thought the economists are raising here. So respectfully, Rishi, Matthew disagrees with you, is what you're saying? That is exactly what I'm saying. I think there is, I guess, one more thing that we actually briefly mentioned off air that might be worth mentioning is that in theory, there is an element of indirect inflation linkage to public sector increases as there would be for anyone. 
if there's more money in the economy chasing fewer goods that's kind of the very definition of inflation that kind of could cause a demand pull inflation we could term it just means essentially there's too much if everyone's got more income there's too much demand for the existing level of goods there has to be there's an economic mechanism called rationing there that means prices are going to increase to kind of taper off that demand because otherwise we'd run out we'd be a, a system of full capacity that would just be carnage <laughs> so there has to be in you know basic economic theory rationing which is where prices increase to meet that increase in demand or in wages in this case so by that mechanism yes there could arguably be a bit of an element of inflation but the key point here is that from what i understand the government's claiming that public sector prey increases would directly fuel the ongoing inflation problem we have and that's just not the case so there's no direct link between them that's what we've been trying to establish on this podcast i guess and that's not you know just us saying that that's this graph that you showed which is showing that there's just no correlation yeah absolutely so what do you think i so i've got connections to the civil service i've got family got friends obviously i work with yourself and ed got, got you know strong connections to the public service and it's just it's unfathomable the I mean, hang on, as we're doing this on YouTube, I might as well show a little graph at this point, Tommy. Let me just get it up for myself more than anyone. And you can just see, so this graph reference, I mean, I appreciate you won't be able to see this, Tommy. This graph shows the charted progress of changes in public sector pay and the change in CPI inflation. So the inflation rate shows it in percentage changes, and you can basically see there absolutely being little to no correlation there. And it's really disheartening to see that consistently public sector pay if it increases at all, which it has started to do recently, it's just nowhere near the pace of inflation. Yeah, it's disheartening to see that the services of public sector workers, especially NHS workers, don't seem to be being valued as they should be, in my humble opinion. What about as well, NHS workers are not asking, or certainly junior doctors are not asking for a pay rise, they're asking for pay restoration, because I mean, we've been banging on about this for literally three years. But over the last 10 years, Junior doctors have lost anywhere up, up to 26% of their pay to inflation. Okay, so they're saying pay restoration. So it's not technically a pay rise anyway. So presumably pay restoration would be not inflationary anyway versus a pay rise. Or am I talking economic nonsense? Correct me, please. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Tommy. I think the literature seems to indicate that pay rises, let alone pay restoration, won't have any bearing on inflation. So I think it's absolutely fair to say that pay restoration that junior doctors are looking for right now, it's not going to fuel inflation. It's not going to sort of align with the government's rhetoric that they're putting out there right now. I alluded to this earlier. I think part of the reason they may be hesitant to give the public sector what they you know, arguably deserve is that The Economist quoted each one percentage point in the wage bill on the public side of things would cost the government about 2.4 billion. It's equivalent to 0.1% of the GDP of, you know, of the UK as a whole. And politically, that would require there to be some balance. Now, in a very simple economic example, if we could do a zero sum game, there'd be any change to public expenditure would be offset by higher taxes to then fund this in a kind of way. So that's, I think that's probably one of the angles. And it's weird that they've chosen inflation as the scapegoat. I think it's quite a, I don't want to say a sore topic, but it's quite a, I guess, emotive topic right now. The the cost of living is affecting so many, not least the junior doctors of today. And I think they're, they're kind of using that rhetoric to maybe justify withholding pay rises. Okay, so what we're saying then really is that Rishi is wrong 
And there's actually good hard economic data that backs this up. So I guess they're just going to have to think of another excuse for not paying the hardworking staff in the NHS what they deserve. Mate, that was awesome summary. Pretty complex. I think I understand it. But I think the salient point, am I putting words in your mouth there by saying that we disagree with Rishi? Nope, not at all. Yeah, very much disagree with Rishi. And we'll kind of see what they use next time and probably make another podcast on it. Yeah, definitely. I also want to do a podcast diving into inflation and interest rates a bit more because I kind of basically understand the basics that inflation is high at the moment. And that is because of, you know, the Ukraine war, possibly the cost of goods and services increasing because of Brexit. That's a controversial Mm. idea. And so inflation is high. We need to get inflation down because it's damaging for the economy. And then the way that happens is by the Bank of England raising interest rates. It's just kind of like the only lever they have to pull. So we'll do a pod on that. That was awesome. Strong debut on the podcast. Got any questions or feedback? YouTube comments can be quite brutal, but our ones are all right. So let's hope that trend continues. Now, that was like really educational, really highbrow, really sophisticated. I have brought an article for this episode. And it is about the world's fastest accountant. Okay. So yeah, Ed's not here, unfortunately, not because he is the world's fastest accountant. He is not, but because he's (laughs) on holiday. But there's an actively practicing accountant called Eugene Amodazi, who has just run the 100 meters in 9.93, which makes him the joint fastest British man of all time, the fastest European time this season, and the 13th fastest man in the world this year. And he's a practicing accountant who only took up athletics when he was aged 26. He's now 30. Wow. I assumed it would be too late by that point. Because, you know, they say with musical instruments and language, if you don't start kind of early doors, it's going to be a lot more difficult to get into it. But at 26, he just sort of decided, now's the time. Yeah, I mean, it's quite an interesting story if you want to look look it up. His name is Eugene Amo Dardzi, and he is a practicing accountant, full-time accountant. And yeah, he's just run, you know, the joint fastest British 100-meter time of all time, you know, up there with other legendary British sprinters. That's incredible. Is that, I'm assuming that's shared with Mr. Usain Bolt. I, well, the list of UK sprinters is number one, Linford Christie, 9.87. James DeSalu, 9.91. Zarnell Hughes, 9.91. And then he's tied with Reese Prescott at 9.93. But, you know, he is seriously fast. Do you think Ed might be eyeing that up as a, you know, to add to his list of qualifications? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> on that bombshell, that was great. Great to have you on the pod. It's amazing what you've been doing with us behind the scenes. You've come out of the shadows now and let's do another podcast together really soon. Yeah, mate. Thanks so much for having me on and take care. Take care.